Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24. And if you can this week, if you get an opportunity to just kind of steal away and pray and lift up uh, others, would you pray that I would finally get my voice back? I don't think Leslie's been praying for that to happen. But this is about the third Sunday that I've struggled with my voice. So uh, please pray that my voice would come back. Otherwise, it's going to be just a little harsh on you all to listen to the next few Sundays, okay? Pray for your benefit that my voice will come back in the next week or so. We've been looking at the life of David. And certainly, we don't want to say that everything that David did was exactly right. We know that he had lows in his life. We know that he had highs in his life. We're not trying to elevate David as we work through these series. What we're trying to do is elevate God and what God can do in real people's lives. When we come to make our life count before him, when we have lives of passion, how God can work within us to lead us to be the people that he wants us to be. I love looking through these biographical sketches of the scripture because they remind us that these are real people. And like I said last week, there are highs and there are lows. There are days in their lives where, I mean, everything is going right, where it seems like they are on the top of the mountain. And you and I can relate to those moments. We've had those times. I mean, we know that there, there are moments that we've rejoiced together. We've rejoiced with our families. We've rejoiced with our church. We've rejoiced in our workplace. We've seen great things happen. But we also know that in the reality of this life and the brokenness and fallenness that we see around us, that there are lows, that there are difficulties that we face. And all of us do. Do not come into these doors today thinking that you do not face difficulty or trial or temptation. All of us in this place see lows in our lives. We see difficulties. We see temptation. And what we see within David's life is these highs and lows. And so many times I think we are able to identify with those and to recognize what God is doing. Look, we know that there will be a moment where, where David will fall intensely, where he will he'll experience the great difficulty of sin and its consequences. We know that that's there. But as we look at this passage today, we actually see that, again, there's a high, that he didn't give in to everything. When he was depending upon God, he was able to resist the temptation that would come into his life. And as I've tried to carve this sermon series out, as I've tried to uh, really work it out for us, I wanted you to be able to see not just the low, because again, we could dwell on David's low. But I want you to see that there were some highs in his life. And here today in 1 Samuel chapter 24, you see one of those highs of obedience. So let me catch you up. If you will, you remember last week, we talked a little bit about how David was in the cave and he was experiencing extreme loneliness, even with people coming around him. The scripture says that He's there in the cave, and he doesn't put out a flag. He doesn't put out an invitation to people. But all of a sudden, people from all over the nation begin to gather to David. 400 men come to see him. These are people that are in distress. These are people in debt. These were people in discontent. Could you imagine 
all the losers of Israel joined together in one cave. And here you have a support system. They are all around you. And David becomes their captain. He becomes their leader. Well, King Saul, in his jealousy and envy of the young David, decides he will relentlessly pursue this young man. And King Saul would just keep up the, he'll keep up the chase. He'll keep up the pursuit. He will come after David and his men over and over. And in chapter 23, we're told that Saul only breaks off the chase when he hears that the Philistines have come into the nation of Israel and they're invading the land. And Saul temporarily halts the chase, the pursuit, and he goes after the Philistines. But now in verse 1 of chapter 24, we see that the pursuit continues. Look, look if you will, beginning in verse 1. Now it happened. When Saul had returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. Stop there a moment. Saul again gets his intelligence. He hears that David is held up in En Gedi. A wonderful place to hide. In Gedi, down by the Dead Sea, it's an oasis in the middle of barrenness. And in this oasis where you have all kind of water and, and all kinds of resources, there are caves, there are crags, there are rocks, there, there are all kinds of great hiding places. So David and now his 600 men, he's gathered 200 more. They are there hiding in En Gedi, the spring of goats as it is called. He's there. And Saul decides he will take 3,000 choice men and he will pursue David into that area. He will eventually capture David and kill him, removing the threat. Notice this in verse 3. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road. In other words, there are sheep pens. This is a place that, have been, that has been used to graze the herds. The caves have been used for the sheep. There are camps probably there. And it says... That there was a cave. And Saul went in to attend to his needs. And David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Now folks, how real does the scripture get with us, huh? It says that they come down, Saul and his men, they're, they're there. He says, he says to the guys, you all go set up camp. You get everything ready. I got to go to the bathroom. All right? That's literally what it means. I know some of you say, oh, I can't believe he's speaking about this. The scripture is speaking about this. It, I mean, it's getting real with us here in this place, all right? I mean, and I'm sure he's like most of us guys, right? He had insisted not to stop on the trip down. I mean, he had to get to En Gedi, so he, I mean, he had not stopped. You don't stop for bathroom breaks, right? Guys, where are you? I mean, you will never get there if you stop every 30 minutes or every hour, every two hours. You will never get there. One of the last times we were going to Disney World, Leslie said, I've got to go to the bathroom. And I said, baby, I mean, we ain't got time. <laughs> she said, yes, we do. And I said, we have got, we keep stopping. I mean, we got four kids. Every time we get out, they have to have a drink which leads them to have to go to the bathroom again in just a little while. They've got to get out. They've got to do, you know, they, 
We can't stop. I remember we were around Tallahassee, I think, which is the armpit of the state of Florida. Did I say that out loud? I didn't mean that, but I was trying to, trying to find a place. We pulled up. It was a, it was a great establishment, you know? It was awesome. It, it was called, you think I'm kidding, it was called Hoggly Woggly. I don't know if it's a knockoff of Piggly Wiggly. I don't know what it was. This is the service station. I said, there you go, babe. That, that's the bathroom. She's like, I am not using the bathroom here in this place. Maybe you got to go to the bathroom. You'll go right here. You know, anyway, I finally came to my senses and I found a very respectful place and all. We all stopped and refreshed ourselves, you know. But guys, you know, here's Saul. He hasn't taken a bathroom break all the way down. He told the guys, he said, y'all go on to the camp. I'm going to run into this cave and I'm going to the bathroom real quickly. He goes into this cave, just so happens to be the cave where David and his men, 600 of them, are holed up. And the reality of temptation comes before King David. The reality of temptation, I say King David, he is going to be the king. Some have already recognized him. Maybe these guys who named him captain, they recognize he's going to be. But the reality of temptation is now before David. And this is a real temptation. Because you have Saul in a vulnerable position, alone by himself. David with 600 men. This is a temptation for David now to end the pursuit, to end the authority of Saul, and to end Saul's life. It is a real temptation. Look, if you will, verse 4, Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. Even the men who were around recognized this was a golden opportunity. This was temptation. This was an open door for David. Well, let me say to you this morning that real temptation comes in our lives. And if you note, it is temptation that is really tempting. I mean, when temptation comes to us, most of the time, it is like it is tempting. I know that goes without saying, but... You and, I know what I, you and I know what I'm talking about this morning. That there are certain things in life that are recognized as temptations that we don't have problems with. But there are certain things that come within us personally that we can be very tempted by. It's like it's been customized to us. It's been tailored to our experience. I want you to try to get into the mind of David. For the last few days and months, what has David experienced? He's experienced the envy, the jealousy of the king that he actually loved, that he respected. He's been chased by this man. This man who had declared himself an enemy of David, he has pursued him every day. What has David been thinking about? What has he been thinking about all this time? He's been thinking about Saul. He's been thinking about this experience. 
He's been thinking about how Saul has turned against him. He's been thinking about trying to find a hiding place. Every time he moves, it seems like that Saul finds him. The intelligence agencies put out word where he is. So every day upon his mind is Saul. Every day it's the pursuit. Every day he is struggling in his life because of this one man. And what happens? The one man walks into the cave. I say to you that those things that we get to thinking about, those things that really consume us, those seem to be the things that just walk right into our cave or walk right into our lives and bring us temptation. Hey, when you're on a diet, some of you do a diet every now and then. I know it's February. You still on the January diet? We say we're going to do a diet. When you do a diet, what do you think about? You think about food. You think about not eating food. You think about not have. I mean, every day you're going to think about it. And what happens? You know that food is going to come right before you. You know when you say, I'm not going to have these sweets, what happens? The sweets are just brought to you. Somebody shows up in the offices and says, hey, I brought a cake by. I brought a pie by. Hey, by the way, I'm not on, lim- I'm not on a diet. So if you want to bring a lemon ice box, you come on, all right? You're not tempting me at all. But it's always on your mind. You're always thinking about it. And it seems to always be there. Seriously. When you're lonely, when you're lonely, when you're going through difficult times, that seems to be when this forbidden companionship walks into your cave and tempts you. When every day you've been thinking about the loneliness of your heart, what happens? It seems like somebody's there and there's a temptation that you have. It is always seeming to be customized to our lives. Now, think about Jesus for a moment and his temptation. We know there were many times that he was tempted. We know that. But right after his ministry is initiated through baptism, the public ministry initiated, he goes into the wilderness and he's there for 40 days. And Satan comes to him there and he tempts him. Think about those temptations for a moment. The first one is the temptation for Jesus to turn stone into bread. Now, I've always kind of struggled with that. I mean, why would Jesus be so tempted by bread? I mean, this is the God of heaven. Why would he be tempted by simple bread? Well, because Jesus was human. Don't forget that. He was the God-man. Totally God, totally man. And he had been in the, in the wilderness 40 days, and he had been fasting. You know what that means? Some of you don't. Maybe. Fasting means he has not been eating. So he's not had anything after 40 days. I can't imagine. I can't go much more than a meal or so without eating something. I think it's just terrible. I mean, 40 days. So what's on his mind? Well, certainly hunger. 
He has experienced hunger itself. And what does Satan do? Satan comes and says, just have some bread. Just use your powers for your own pleasure, for your own needs. You use your powers for what you need right now. Just take the stone and turn it to bread. See, Satan never doubted God's power either, or Jesus' power here. He knew he could. He said, why don't you have some bread? Well, the second and the third temptations, depending on the order that you read in Matthew or Luke, you'll, you'll see that Satan takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple, remember? And he says, hey, Jesus, if you'll just throw yourself down from the pinnacle, the Bible says, oh, how Satan knows what the scripture says. He says, the scripture says that the angels will come and save you. So in midair, when you're going down, the angels will save you and... And that'll be a, a wonderful thing. Why was that such a temptation? Because if Jesus were to have done this, he would have demonstrated his Messiahship through all, through such sensationalism, through this act that people would probably recognize him as king. I mean, this was a pretty phenomenal thing, right? To jump off the pinnacle and the angels come and everybody see that word would get out. They would recognize him as Messiah. And then... He wouldn't have to go to the cross. So I'll never forget my high school Bible teacher talking to us about how it was a temptation for Jesus to skip the cross. But Jesus did not come to be a sensational Savior. He came to be a sacrificial Savior. And he refused. But think of the temptation. That every day of his life, he knew he was on mission from God, the God above and he knew that he was facing the cross. So it was a real temptation. And then, of course, Satan says, bow down to me and I will give you everything. You see this world in front of you. Now, I believe Satan was promising something that he did not truly own or he could truly give. But he said, you see all of this? You can have it this way. Again, Skip the sacrifice, skip the passion, skip the suffering. You can have it all. There were real temptations that came to Jesus, just like this is a real temptation in David's life. I do not believe Satan is omniscient. I do not believe that Satan knows all. I believe the God of heaven knows all and that he is the only omniscient one in this universe. But what Satan does is he takes note of our lives. In his demonic hordes, they kind of take note. They recognize our weaknesses. They recognize our actions. They recognize what really draws us in. And they will attack in that one specific area over and over and over. If it is physical hunger, it will be something like the bread that they offer you, the forbidden bread. If it's something of emotional or spiritual, they will come and they will attack in those areas. For David, for his life at this moment, the temptation is to rid himself of Saul, to rid himself of the king that continues to pursue. Now, you and I have we had time this morning, and if we were honest, we probably could stand and say, 
This is the area where God attacks me most often. Most of us probably recognize it. Or we're familiar with those areas. These are there. These are the things. You know, I've always said I've never had trouble with alcohol, for example, in my life. Never been tempted. First of all, it smells terrible to me. I, I can't imagine and uh, and I, so I've never had trouble. I've watched my brothers struggle with that. And I just said, for me and my household, I wasn't going to deal with it because it just was too much for me. So I never really struggled with that temptation to get involved and, and to abuse it in any way. But that doesn't mean I don't have my own issues and struggles. I've got my own set. And I know those things attack me constantly. There is the reality of temptation in your life. Satan and his demonic, his demonic forces, they know it. And they will attack. And listen, the reality of temptation can also be followed by the rationale for that temptation. In other words, it can seem reasonable. Did you hear what these other guys said? They said, David, this is the day. God's been waiting on this day. God... God is the one who's behind this. God just sent him in here. And it was providential, obviously, that Saul comes into the exact cave. But the temptation made sense. It always does. You can always make sense out of this temptation. When it comes into your life, you, I'm talking about you and your own human faculty, You can always make sense and you can always justify the temptation. And all these guys say, ah, look, God's God's all into this thing. Have you ever noticed how many times God has gotten the blame for our own failures? How many times we blame God? Well, God, you put it here. God, I mean, I, I just know this has to be what I'm supposed to do. I mean, think of Saul again. Saul sitting there. And he is reading the Gibeah Daily Leader. And as he is sitting there in the most vulnerable position you can imagine, the men, the people, I mean, they know that this is the moment that God has given. Because you can always rationalize your sin. You can always justify it. How many times as a pastor have I heard people say, well, this is what I believe God was leading me to do. I mean, we we can make up excuses. My boss mistreated me. So when I had the opportunity to get him back in that open meeting, I got him back. Because God gave me the opportunity. My wife has not shown me any attention. She's not shown me any attention for all these years. And when God put this other person in my life, this is when I knew that I could have true companionship and happiness. God knew that the company had not paid me what I needed to be paid for all these years. So when God gave me the opportunity to take some of that money and to just put it back, it was mine anyway. They had not given me what I deserved. How many times do you hear people justifying, rationalizing, reasoning the temptation to their own ends? And you and I, oh, you and I, we're good at it. Because you and I, we... We, most of us have been in the church life and we know the language and we know how to speak it. And we can take sometimes even the scripture and we can justify, we can try to rationalize 
what we want to do. Everything would have seemed right here. I mean, come on, folks. He had been pursuing David all this time. This is like self-defense. All David was doing was just defending himself. David had every right to go ahead and murder Saul, kill Saul. At this point, most of us would have even agreed with that. It wouldn't have taken much for us to get to that position, especially when everybody else says it's right. Have you ever noticed how peer pressure can just, it can influence us in, in so many different ways. Hey, I, I remember I was like a youth minister at Blue Springs Baptist Church. I was leading music a little bit and doing youth. And we always took these summer trips and sometimes we'd do a little part of mission and sometimes we'd do a little part of fun. And we, we started going over to Atlanta a lot. Uh, just, it, I don't know. Well, you know why? Because the Braves started winning. I know that's a long time ago, right? Some of you don't even remember that. You don't even remember when the Braves were relevant. I wished I didn't, just to be honest with you. I'm not a Braves fan. But anyway, our pastor's wife was, and she liked to go to the ball game. So we went ahead, and we went over to Atlanta every now and then, and we would go to a ball game, and we would, <clears throat> we would go to something called Six Flags. It's like an amusement park, something like that. And I went over there, and I remember the first time I was in line to ride something called Free Fall. Now, I, I didn't want to ride this thing. I could see it, and I could see and hear people screaming. And I thought, there's no way that this could be fun. No way. And the youth, of course, came to me and said, now, Brother Reggie, you... You're not going to ride? I said, no, I'm not going to ride that thing. And they said, you're not going to ride? You scaredy cat, you this and this. And, you know, I was like, man, I am not right. And they just kept on and they kept on and I kept on. And I, and I decided, I've got to ride this thing. i got to get on it. It's, I can't believe I'm going to do this, but I'm getting on it. So I got in line to ride the free fall. And uh, as I was getting up there, I got more nervous, more nervous. Some of the guys began to tell me that they were, it, it kind of slowed down, by the way, like the line did for a moment. Some of the guys began to tell me they were having mechanical problems and those kind of things, you know. <laughs> I could just feel the intensity of the moment growing. I got on the ride, and of course it brings you up, you know, and then you sit there for just a few seconds. Now, I had like four youth, I think, with me on the ride. I can't remember, three or four youth. And when I got to the top and I could see out and we were just sitting there, I began to confess everything that I'd ever done in my personal life. And I prayed to God and told him if he would just get me down, you know, that my life would be different and I would be changed. It was at that moment when I realized we needed to install those in Baptist churches all across the South, you know. <laughs> You talk about a difference in people's lives if you just took them up and made them confess and come back down. <laughs> but I, I gave in, you know, I finally gave in to the peer pressure. I went up, I did it, I survived. I did not want to get back on that thing <coughs> at all. I mean, roller coasters don't bother me, but the free fall kind of feeling, man. But sometimes... We've already rationalized what we want to do when temptation walks into the cave, when it's there with us. And then when other people just kind of say, hey, this is good, this, we can help you get there, we just decide to go ahead. 
Now, first of all, you and I ought to watch the counsel that we follow. You and I listen to some of the wrong people sometimes. You and I need to have godly people in our lives. As I said just a few weeks ago, people that fear God more than they fear us. To speak into our lives. And to tell us what we need to hear. And we need to be reminded that obedience is not based upon others. Your obedience or my obedience is not based upon what other people do. It's based upon what I do before the living God of heaven. So all these guys, they're saying, hey, you can do this. Well, look, as the story continues, it says that David arose, verse 4, David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So when David got up, you can imagine the other guys, they're almost going into full cheer mode. Yes, David's going. He's going to do just like we said. We told him God was in this. God was in it. David went and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Verse 5, now it happened after the, that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. Because in this passage, and again, I'm telling you, David's not perfect. We'll see that in his life. But in this passage, David demonstrates restraint toward temptation. He restrains himself. Instead of Killing Saul, he cuts off this portion of his robe. Now, some believe it was an attack upon the kingship. It was an attack upon Saul in some way. Obviously, David is troubled by it. So, so let me give you this as we prepare to close, okay? Because for us to restrain the temptation that comes in our lives, we need to have a sensitivity to God's spirit in our life. If you notice this, David's sensitivity to the spirit, it said as soon as he does it, there's something that troubles him. There's something that troubles him. David is walking so closely to God in this passage that when he cuts even a piece of the robe of Saul, he is troubled by it. May you and I be so troubled by the small things of life that we never get to the point of the big things. You and I need a sensitivity in our spirit that even when we, even when we justified or tried to justify, when we, when we get to the point of we have taken something small, it troubles us. I mean, most people, obviously, they're going to be like, David, what have you done? You should have killed him. You would think most people... Said he had shown restraint there, but he was still troubled. I love what one person said, and that is that we should, we should have such a sensitive spirit that even when we take a paperclip that is not ours, we should be bothered in our conscience and in our heart. And you and I need to develop that sensitivity to God's spirit. We need to be bothered by the small things of life. Why? Because God was active in his life. Obviously, God was active. And the only way is for us to see God's activity. Again, it says the men of David who had, who had cried, who had said, this is what you ought to do. It says, verse 6, that he said to them, 
The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. He had a sensitivity to God's spirit. He had a submission before God's sovereignty. Sensitivity to God's spirit that it bothered him, but a submission to God's spirit or to God's sovereignty. In other words, he recognized God was in charge of this. God was the king. God was not just the one who had sent him, sent Saul into that cave. God was the one who was in charge of this whole process of king making. Notice what he says over and over that this is the Lord's anointed. This one is. Saul. Hey, could you imagine? You and I, we would resist. We would have pushed back. But there's an issue here of where there was a salute to the position even despite the person. Hey, you and I could learn from that, right? I know this is going to make you mad, but this is good right at the end to make you mad, right? I don't care if it's President Clinton, President Bush, President Obama, President Trump. There's still a respect that is due a position. You say, oh, no, look at Saul. This guy is distressed by an evil spirit. He is seeking David. And David said, this is the Lord's anointed. I'm not going. I am not going to take his life. It's as though he had heard the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, 35, which are repeated by Paul in the New Testament of Romans 12, 19. And that was, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. In other words, God's got this. You can continue to hear it. Verse 8 David also arose afterwards, went out of the cave, called to Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth. Notice this. He bowed down. Again, the respect toward the office. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you. But my eye spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, you see the corner of your robe in my hand? For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand. I have not sinned against you. you yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. Verse 15. Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see the and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. Notice the submission again before God's sovereignty. But also notice that one of the ways he was able to restrain from temptation is his standing before God's sight. It was the sensitivity to God's spirit. It was the submission to God's sovereignty, but also it was his standing before God's sight because this. He knew that he was right before God. Mm. Mm. How liberating is that when you know that you're right before God? 
when people come before you, when they attack you? Look, folks, I have struggled over the years with something called people pleasing. I can't stand it when somebody is upset or mad. But in the last few years, what I've tried to do is say, God, there are only certain things that I can control in my life. And I pray at the end of it that when I stand before you in the sight of all these different relationships, that I will have done what was right before your eyes. It can be liberating. And David comes out to Saul and he said, hey, I just want you to know, I believe I stand before God in a right way. And I'm going to let him take care of these things. The rest of these verses, Saul speaks back to David and he recognizes at least temporarily. Temporarily, I know. But he'll recognize how David has shown him grace and mercy. And there'll be an oath taken that David will show grace to Saul's family in the years to come. Oh, David will have other temptations. I mean, chapter 26, he'll have another opportunity to take Saul's life. Yet he won't do it. Because he restrains himself from temptation. Temptation is real. Temptation can be rational. But temptation can be restrained. And this is what's cool. I, I didn't read this, but you can go back and look at the story. Not only did he restrain himself, but he restrained his men. Because a godly testimony can be infectious. Because when God is working in your life and you are able to restrain that temptation, God will give you strength to help others to restrain the temptations that come in their lives as well. What temptation has just walked into your cave? What temptation just walked into your life? I know it's real. And I know it seems to be overpowering. I know it seems that God may have just put it there before you. But remember, we don't live by circumstances. We live by the revelation of God. And if God's word says it's not right, it's not right. If God's word says... Don't do this. Don't do it. Restrain through the power of God in your life. Restrain from giving in to that temptation. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we've walked into this room today. Lord, we've come with our burdens and we've come with, Lord, our gratitude and we've come with all kinds of different emotions because God this week so many different things walked into our lives and Lord temptation itself walked in and we struggled we continue to struggle even this morning but God I pray that you would help us to have that sensitivity to your spirit, the submission to your sovereignty, the standing before your sight that we should have. Thank you that even when we fall, that there is grace and there is mercy and there is forgiveness found. 
And God, this morning, I pray that you extend that mercy and grace and forgiveness. And that there would be those who would come and simply follow you. Those who are not saved that need to accept you for the first time. Those of us who are saved and, Lord, we've gotten off track, Lord, today. You'd call us back. And God, give us strength each day. Because we know this afternoon, in the morning, this week, we're going to be struggling with these temptations that come back to us. Lord, I pray that you'd give us the strength. Now speak to us during this moment of commitment and invitation in Jesus' name.